Let's take our Bibles now this morning. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 14. Now hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Let's pray together this morning as we come to God's Word. Our God and our Father, what rich words these are from the mouth of the Apostle Paul and ultimately by the breath of God, by the Holy Spirit who inspired these words, who breathed them out. We praise you for this rich and lavish description of your grace that you have lavished upon us and for its instruction as to who we are and what we are in Christ Jesus. We pray this morning that you will be with us and help us to understand that you will use your word to penetrate our hearts, that you will give us grace, that you will help us rejoice, and that you will transform us by the renewing of our minds. These things we pray for the sake of your glory in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. These words, especially between verses 3 and 14 here, are all one sentence in the original writings of the Apostle Paul. There's no punctuation there in the Greek anyways, but the way he wrote this is all one big self-contained thought of what God has done for us through grace and through faith in Christ Jesus and what we are in Christ Jesus. So important for us to grasp what we are in Christ Jesus, what our identity is, what it is that defines us. 
The late great pastor and author Jerry Bridges, in his little book that's called Who Am I?, makes this very simple but really profound and important point. He says that most people, most often, tend to define themselves, tend to define who they are and what they are, according to the things that they have done and according to the things that have been done to them, that have happened to them. So, for example, um, uh, a lady whose marriage broke up and failed may very well be inclined to define herself as a failure. Or someone who has experienced a lot of abuse in their lives and been treated like a piece of dirt, may be very tempted to see themselves and define themselves as a piece of dirt who's only worth being mistreated and abused. Or on the other side of the spectrum, someone who grew up in a life of great privilege, or someone who's become very famous, someone who's popular, might very well in the sinfulness of their flesh be tempted to define themselves as as kind of a big deal, as more important than other people, as someone who deserves more out of life than other people do. And those those are just the extremes, right, on either end of the spectrum. I think all of us oftentimes have this potential to struggle with the temptation to define ourselves by the things that we have done or by the things that have happened to us, by our worldly circumstances. And that can lead to all kinds of trouble, all kinds of debilitating hopelessness and despair, and also to the kind of life that assumes that the primary way for us to change anything about what we are, if we don't like something about ourselves, is it's up to us, for us to work hard, for us to do something different, to change our circumstances. And and that's led to this really bizarre moment in human history here in the United States of America, in the Western world, where it's become more and more vogue, more and more fashionable, acceptable, Normal for people to try to fundamentally redefine who they are, even biologically, right? I don't like myself. I'm not comfortable in my own skin, so I'm just going to redefine it. If someone's not happy with the race or the gender that God created them in, then the standard of our day is that they should have the freedom to just change that and declare something else. And then everybody else around them is required now to accept whatever self-definition they want to claim for themselves. And it's just outright cruel and mean and abusive, we're told, not to use their preferred pronouns and not to accept their self-imposed redefinitions. Several years ago, even, I read about a 52-year-old man living in England who decided he didn't like being a 52-year-old man anymore. And so he left his wife and his children in order to go and live as a six-year-old girl with a family who took him in because they were so loving and they were happy to accommodate him according to what he redefined himself to be and they wrote a whole big expose of this. So, obviously, 
what we've got to know, what we've got to remember is that the only one who has the right and the power and the ability to define us, to define who we are, to define what we are, is the God who made us in His image. And that goes even for the things that we've done, right? And the things that have been done to us. We are not ultimately the product of our own making. We are not ultimately the product of our own circumstances. All of those things in some way describe certain things about us, but they do not actually define us. God defines us. God who made us to be in His image defines us as what we are as human beings. And God who redeemed us by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ who crucified us, who raised us to newness of life with Jesus Christ, who made us to be forgiven, who made us to be justified and washed and and sanctified, and who made us, as I want to focus most specifically on this morning, to be adopted as His own children. This is what defines us in relationship to the things that we've done and that have been done to us in our lives. So this morning... That, all of that's why we're focusing in here on these awesome words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, which reveal to us what we are and who we are in Christ Jesus. And I want to focus in especially on verse 5 here of Ephesians chapter 1 and on this one word in verse 5, adoption. In love, God has predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of His will. Uh, It's just so much to be unpacked there. It's this awesome, grand, life-defining truth that what we are are the adopted children and heirs of God in Christ. Let's talk about what that means. In love, God predestined us for adoption. The word adoption is huiothesion in Greek. And just listen to the definition in one Greek lexicon of this word as it was used all throughout the ancient world and as Paul intends it here. Adoption means to formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own natural child is henceforth by virtue of adoption to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. There's no distinction between an adopted child and a natural born child according to the law and according to what adoption is. And that's beautiful and that's wonderful and that's powerful when we realize that God Himself predestined us to be adopted as His children. What God has has predetermined for us, what he before the foundations of the world were ever laid has predestined us for. 
through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His perfect, all-knowing will, and to the praise of His glorious grace, Paul says here, is to make us, who were not His children by nature, because we were children of wrath by nature, to make us to henceforth be treated by God and cared for by God as His own children, including complete rights of inheritance. You start to even think about the tip of that iceberg and you can ask yourself very realistically, could there possibly be any greater blessing that's even conceivable than everything that God has done to adopt us so that we might be called His children and so that we might inherit everything that He has to give. What a privilege that is, right? To meditate on this relationship of sonship that God has forged with us before we even existed. Here's how I want to start as we, as we contemplate it. I want to start by, by thinking about our need, our need for adoption because we were not, we did not come into this world as God's own natural born children. Think about it this way. Think back with me to the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, and in chapter 16, don't turn, I'm just going to fly through Ezekiel with you here. <laughs> in Ezekiel chapter 16, God also uses the metaphor of adoption in that chapter in order to picture and, and, and illustrate His relationship, not to a person, but actually to a city, the city of Jerusalem. He says, I found you and I adopted you as my, I took you in as my own child and I gave you everything that I have to give. Now, the situation, of course, in Ezekiel is not a good situation. The context is that Babylonian captivity. God had rained down judgment on his people, on their land, on the city of Jerusalem because of all of the wicked sin. God calls it detestable wickedness in Ezekiel, idolatry, immorality that had just come to pollute and corrupt the whole city and even the temple of God itself in the city. He outlines it for us through the opening chapters of Ezekiel and he explains this is why God's not happy. There was ritualistic, religious immorality going on in the temple of Yahweh. Even homosexual prostitution as they worshipped pagan gods. There was Molech worshipping happening in and around Jerusalem. And that involved human sacrifice. Specifically, it involved the sacrifice of living infants that were given as burnt offerings to the false god Molech. It was the most demonic, satanic stuff you can imagine happening in God's city. In Ezekiel chapter 8, God took Ezekiel kind of on a behind-the-scenes tour of the temple so as to say, look at all the junk going on in here. This is why I'm out of here and I'm leaving you to the mercy or lack thereof of the Babylonians. The people of Jerusalem, the elders of the city, the priests, the leaders of the temple, they were all engaged in every conceivable kind of idolatry. They'd, they'd imported false gods, wicked rituals from every major pagan nation around them, the Assyrians, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. 
Every kind of idolatry you can imagine had come to replace the worship of the one true living God in His temple. It was all sort of summed up by a group that God showed Ezekiel down in an alcove of the temple. Twenty-five leaders of the temple were all assembled together before this altar of sacrifice that was supposed to be in service to the worship of God, but they were standing there with their arms raised and their faces turned towards the east. And as they were doing that, they were worshiping the sun itself. They were worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. And as they were facing east doing that, their backs were facing to the temple. And so the, the, the picture, their posture was the picture. They've literally turned their backs on God. They've forsaken Him in every conceivable way and they're indulging in the worst, most detestable kinds of idolatry and immorality and fleshliness you can imagine and they're doing it right there in the temple. And so in in Ezekiel chapter 9, God says, therefore I pronounce judgment on Jerusalem. And He summons executioners to come and plow through Jerusalem in judgment. And then in chapters 10 and 11, God leaves Literally, right? The Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God rises up from the Holy of Holies and passes through the courts of the temple and out into the outer courtyard and and then pauses as if to look back in, in disdain and regret upon His holy city and through the east gate and over the Mount of Olives and He never comes back to that temple. He's gone. He abandons His people in their sin. The, the Hebrew word for that is Ichabod. It means the glory has departed. And that's what happened. The city would be at the mercy of the Babylonians who had zero mercy. God was not there to protect them or defend them or stop it from happening. So all of that is what God has in mind and in His heart in Ezekiel chapter 16, where he pours out a bitter, bitter lament over Jerusalem because of what's become of it. And in chapter 16, he pictures his relationship to that city through the metaphor of adoption. He says that he found this city like a helpless infant that was lying naked and alone in a field, covered in its own blood, its umbilical cord not even cut, totally abandoned, totally vulnerable, totally uncared for, cast out into a field and abandoned and abhorred. That's how he found Jerusalem. Innocent, helpless, defenseless. And then God says, but I took you. I adopted you. I made you my own child. I gave you life. I cared for you. I caused you to grow. I caused you to flourish. And then he decked her out with the most beautiful and the finest clothes and the most fancy jewelry that that's, you could imagine from the most precious metals. Raised her up to prominence. Gave her this reputation of glory and majesty that was unsurpassed throughout the whole world. And that was recognized. People from other countries came flooding to see the glory of God manifest in Jerusalem. And then, in spite of all of that, she turned from Him. After everything that He'd done for her, 
after all of the love that he lavished her with, she stopped trusting her father, started trusting her own beauty, and gave herself like a prostitute to all of the pagan nations of the world. That's the picture. The adopted child had become a wretched rebel, living not as the beautiful daughter, glorifying her father, but as his enemy, actually, bringing disdain and shame upon his name. This morning, as we think on the reality of our adoption by God, we have got to start by realizing that for us, that whole story is reversed. Right? When God adopted us, we were already rebels and enemies. We weren't innocent. We had already done to God what Jerusalem had done. And yet, He loved us still. And so the the kind of love that we're talking about transcends even the great love that God had had in the Old Covenant for Jerusalem. God didn't find us as sweet, cute, beautiful, innocent little babies. Right? Innocence did not define our need for adoption like it did for Jerusalem. Our natures and our need was defined by sin and death and enmity and hostility. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, separated from Christ, alienated, having no hope, and without God in this world. That's how Paul describes our condition before our adoption. That's our nature as we came into this world. Spiritually dead, outcasts, enemies, separated from Christ, without hope, without God, His enemies. Children of wrath, not natural born children of God. Children of the devil, John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10. We were in Adam. And in Adam, we had already forsaken God. We had already fallen short of His glory. We were His enemies. And yet, Paul says, before we were ever born, before we ever even existed, before we sinned, and expressed our rebellious sinfulness and enmity towards God, before the very foundations of the world had ever even been laid, before it all, when there was no universe, when there was no physical matter even, when the triune God was all that existed, He predestined us then. So that we would be Adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. I mean, it's inconceivable. And yet it's true. Why would God do that? On what basis did the almighty, all-knowing God predestine us for adoption 
as His children. I mean, it's not any beauty or attractiveness or goodness or potential even in us, right? It's not that God looked down the pipe and said, you know what? Steve's going to probably do some good stuff, so I'll save him and, and free up all that potential. It, no. There was nothing. There was ugliness and filthiness and defilement. Why would God adopt me as His child? Well, Paul gives us the answer, I think, in three, in three pieces in verses 5 and 6 here of Ephesians chapter 1. And I see him listing these three things in order of growing, escalating significance and importance. The first one is love. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons. And it is one of the great, unfathomably wonderful truths of the gospel that even though we were not lovely, God loved us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. What is it that compelled God to love us? Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 6 that while we were still weak and ungodly at the right time, Christ died for us. And then he says in verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. He, the physician didn't come for the healthy ones. He came for the sick ones. The, he didn't come to die for righteous, holy, perfect people. And then Paul says this, though, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And that jibes with some human instincts that we have, right, about how love often works in this world. But it's not how it always works with God. In this world and in our experience and tendencies, if someone sees something good in another person, something noble, something worthy, even some potential, Maybe we would die for them. Maybe someone would consider that a worthwhile sacrifice in order to preserve the goodness that they perceive in the other person. And that kind of thing is the basis of almost every heroic movie or story that's ever been written in book form or produced in film form in Hollywood, right? From King Leonidas to Gandalf, from Black Hawk Down to Saving Private Ryan. Hollywood loves heroic sacrifices, right? Fair enough. Greater love has no man than he to lay down his life for his friends. There's nobility at work. Anyone, anytime anyone sacrifices their own life to save the life of another. But typically... The heroic sacrifices we see depicted are aimed at someone else who is noble or good or innocent. Someone who's worth dying for because of something about them. And the problem is, when we start making those kinds of examples into sermon illustrations, because that's not the kind of love we're talking about with God. One author says... There is a vast gulf of difference between God's love and even the loftiest ideals of human love. 
Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for the righteous. He didn't die for the noble. He didn't die for the good. He didn't die for His friends. He died for His enemies in order to make them His friends. In order to make us God's children. That, this, is, this is the kind of love that we're talking about and it is unique to God and to His people. Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who him to death pursued. Why would he do that? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? That's what we're talking about. It's foreign to this world. It's foreign to our sinful, self-absorbed, me-centered ideas about love. This love of God. God's love is the kind of love that isn't conditioned by what someone does or doesn't do to deserve it, to earn it. And we're not used to that kind of unconditional love. Because in this world, we don't have any analogs. We don't have any reference to anything else that's like it. It's as hard for us to understand it as it is for us to understand the triune nature of God. There's nothing else like it. Our definition of love, the world's, what we tend to call love in this world, the way we tend to love in this world, requires people to meet our expectations first as a prerequisite. They need to do what we expect them to do. They've, they've got to make us feel the way we want them to make us feel. They've got to perform well for us, then we'll love them. And what does Jesus say to his disciples? Luke chapter 6. What's his evaluation of this kind of love in the world that's typical? If you only love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. That's nothing godlike, it's nothing divine. It requires no regeneration, no new life, no presence of the Holy Spirit to love like that. Every sinner loves like that. It's just giving in order to get. If it's just a response to something they do for me, for how they made me feel, for how they met my expectations, for the, the good that they did to me, then guess what? Then it's, it's all about me, isn't it? Ultimately, it's the same kind of love that any unregenerate, unbelieving sinner is perfectly capable of. Again, Jesus, if you do good... To those who do good to you, what good is that? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that? It's not actually love. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount or more. But I say, love your enemies. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Because see, that's His love. He is kind to the ungrateful. He is kind to the evil. He is merciful to the sinner. 
and the enemy. So therefore you be merciful, Jesus says, even as your Father is merciful. Love unconditionally. Love selflessly. Love without any expectation of of receiving dividends or return on your investment. Love entirely for the sake of the other person. Love even when the other person is your enemy. Love even when the only thing you've ever gotten from them and the only thing you're going to expect to get back from them is, is persecution, cursing. Love them then. And if you can do that, you will show the love of God to them. And you will show yourself to be a child of the Most High God. Because children of God reflect and manifest the character of their Father. And this is God's love. He is kind and unconditionally loving to the ungrateful and to the evil. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, does He not? There's all kinds of people out there right now, at the beach, right now, shaking their fist at God, worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. And God is causing glorious sunshine to shine down upon them. For He is a merciful God. So merciful that He sent His Son and He died for His enemies. What in the world possessed God to do that? The answer, nothing in this world. Nothing on this earth. And so Paul says here in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And over in chapter 5 of Ephesians, he tells us Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You see the, the contrast to the Ezekiel 16 love, where he found an innocent baby and cleaned her all up first, and then she went astray. We had already gone astray and sullied ourselves and made ourselves as enemies, and then he loved us and cleaned us up, lavished us with the blessings and, and, and adorned us with the righteousness of Christ and sanctified us and made us beautiful, even though we were enemies. All of that's very similar to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons. When God chose us, again, before the foundations of the world, when He predestined us, He predestined us to become holy and blameless as His children. And when he did that, he also predestined his only begotten son, Jesus, to die for us in order to accomplish that, to give himself up for us, in order to clean us, to wash us, to be able to present us to himself in splendor, not in our filth. And now, see, now we start to see, I think, the progression in Paul's thought and the logic that Paul sees in God's ways, which, which are so much higher than our ways. God would die for the ungodly. There's nothing like that in this world. The Almighty, All-Holy One would die for His enemies 
Because in love he predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. See, the whole point is to declare to us and to proclaim to every single believer that we owe our adoption in God's family solely and entirely, not to anything we did, but to the pleasure of his own will. Just because it pleased him. Not because you pleased him. It's His will, His pleasure is not bound by anything outside of Himself. By anything that you did to provoke His pleasure or to bend His will. It's just His own holy, ineffable character, His own perfect, immutable nature, His own sovereign free will, unconstrained by anything in us, anything done by us. In spite of our wretchedness, in spite of our sin, He chose us. He called us. He saved us. He washed us. He raised us to newness of life. He justified us. He adopted us. It would have been awfully merciful of God to say, well, you're forgiven, and from this point on, unless you mess it up, you don't have to worry about condemnation, and, but you know what, I'm just going to leave you there to yourself, like a judge in a courtroom. Okay, I'll acquit you. Go on your way, and and I better not see you back in here. Right? That would have been good. But God did more. God said, you know what? I don't want you to go on your way. I want you to come home with me. I don't want to be your judge anymore. I want to be your father. And I want to give you everything you need so that I never ever have to say to you, I condemn you. It's unbelievable. He loved us with this kind of inexplicable, incomparable, unconditional love when we were his sworn enemies. Now we're called his children. Now we grow up in his household. Now we eat his food. Now we wear his clothes. Now we're defined by Him and His family. Now one thing I know is this. It's that many, many, many Christians struggle profoundly with having any confidence that that's actually true of them. And knowing that they are God's children, actually. That He's not just a father in some nebulous sense, that he's not just the heavenly father, but that he's, he's their father. And that he's adopted them into his family and that that's a good thing. And of course, as our loving father, God has provided for that struggle. So, I want you to leave Ephesians and turn over to Romans which is the other great New Testament passage that talks about this great blessing of adoption. Romans chapter 8, you already know where we're going. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at verse 13. Paul wants us to be so confident that he understands as adopted children who were once his enemies the struggle that we will often have in accepting that reality and definition of what we are in Christ that he very patiently and very graciously even gives us what we need to meet that need. 
to confirm to our spirits that we actually are His children. Romans 8, verse 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you define yourself according to your own sinful passions and desires, you'll die permanently. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live forever. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God, sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, as the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are in fact children of God. Here's what Paul's doing here. He's painting a contrast between the unbeliever, the unregenerate, unrepentant person who just is living in their sin. And on the other hand, the believer, the the reborn child of God, who even though there's sin that remains in them, in their flesh, in their bodies, in their life, they're battling it. They're fighting it constantly. The Christian, the believer, the child of God is the one, not the one who's sinless, not the one who's perfect, The child of God is the one who, by the Holy Spirit, is on an ongoing basis putting to death the sinful deeds in the body. Waking up in the morning and going, there they are again. Because I'm being anxious. Because I'm not being nice to my family. Because I have lustful thoughts. Because I'm bitter and angry. Because I'm greedy and selfish. Because I'm arrogant and prideful. There's the sin again. And so goes to war. And every day after day after day puts to death the deeds of the flesh. That's That's what a Christian is. If you're doing that, that's the evidence that you are a child of God. Then verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And the word for there connects verse 14, see, back to verse 13. And this emphasis on putting to death the deeds of the flesh, killing sin, mortifying the sin that remains in us. And so in verse 14, Paul is saying, All who are thus led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So He's saying, you need to be killing sin by the Spirit because all who are led by the Spirit to be killing sin are the children of God. The evidence that we are God's children is that the Holy Spirit is in us, causing us, even though we're tempted and fail and sin, to, to, to hate that, to feel bad about that to feel like crucifying ourselves, to to doubt the love of God in our flesh, to be bothered by it, and then empowering us and recognizing the sinfulness of our sin to be able to kill it. He's leading us into warfare and, 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 and making us increasingly victorious over the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body, the sin that remains in us. The evidence that we are the adopted children of God is... That process, that ongoing reality, that increasing dissatisfaction of sin and growing love for God and His righteousness. 
The children of God hate sin more and more. The children of God battle sin more and more. The children of God grow in fruitfulness and righteousness precisely because they're children of God. They're chips off the old block, so to speak. So they learn to walk like he does. They learn to talk like he does. Now, there's been four babies and one on the way. As we look around at them, we all know it doesn't all happen overnight. Your kids don't learn to walk today. Your kids don't learn to talk today. There will come a day when they're 20 years old and you look at them and, and you go, man, your wife will look at your son and go, man, you just look so much like your dad. Your posture is like your dad. The way you talk is like your dad. The way you carry yourself. There's, I look at Spencer and I go, there's so much of that windy spirit in him. <laughs> you know, that unconditionally loving gracious, gentle spirit. And then in the other boys, there's all this wisdom and there's all this stuff that God has just fed into them all from us because they've learned. But it's taken and it will take the rest of their lives and ours to be like our God. We're children of God and so more and more and more we love what God loves. We want what God wants. We are children who love our Father more and more and more. We want to be like Him. Because our priorities, our preferences, our tastes, our attitudes, our desires even, more and more now that we're His children are being molded and shaped by His priorities and preferences and tastes and attitudes and desires. Because He's our Heavenly Father. We've got to see the definition of what we are as His adopted children. And so we share in Him. He gives us new attitudes, new desires. Because we're His. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And, and because all too often children of God struggle with trying to deal with the sin that remains in us the wrong way. Sometimes we do it in our own strength. I got this. Right? Like the kid, the kid who doesn't want any advice. No, Dad, I can totally do this. And then there's a fire that you've got to go put out literally. Because they needed help, but they didn't know it. That we do that all. We light fires in our lives all the time, don't we? And God's always there to put them out and help us and fix the burns. We do it in our own pride. We do it in legalistic ways. I'm going to kill sin because, because basically I'm a Pharisee instead of loving God. We're motivated to try to kill sin out of fear oftentimes instead of out of faith. Or, or out of this desire to be outwardly, formalistically impressive to others. There's all kinds of ways in which we can try to deal with sin wrongly. And so Paul goes on in Romans 8 and verse 15 to say that the reason why the leading of the Spirit proves that we are sons of God is this. It's that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of adoption. Adoption. And that's that same word back in Ephesians chapter 1. He's not... He's, he's given us a spirit of adoption, not a spirit of slavery, not a spirit of fear, so that we can be dealing with sin the right way and not all the wrong ways. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we call Abba Father. The Holy Spirit, the person of God, the Holy Spirit, His presence abiding and dwelling in us is given to us in order to confirm, see, this legal and loving 
transaction of adoption that the Heavenly Father has carried out and confirmed this status that we have been given as God's children. So when Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption, he means that the Holy Spirit comes in and makes that status real to us. To all who did receive Him and believed on His name, He gave the right to be called children of God. And what Paul is saying in Romans 8.15 is that in order to make us confident of that objective reality that, that is real whether we feel like it is or not, of everything that God has done to redeem us and make us His children, and in order to, to make us deeply confident in that, He sends His Holy Spirit flooding into our hearts in order to confirm that reality by causing our hearts to cry out to God, Abba, Father, just like a child does. You've got to be a little bit careful, right? You don't want to use that Abba language to tear God down and make Him too much like us and, 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 and rob Him of His transcendent otherness. But it does, this word that Paul uses, it does speak of, of, of deep affection and in, intimacy and, and tenderness and, and dependence. It's saying that God is not just a father to you in some stoic, dispassionate, academic, cold way. This is a word that is thoroughly respectful of God's higher position and yet deeply affirming of of the intimate cry that a little child makes to a beloved father. So it's a recognition of God's stature coupled with an affection and dependence upon Him because of His love for us. That all is, is then stimulated and ignited by the child's love for the Father because, because the child is fully confident of the Father's love for Him. Right? So, when my boys were little, I came home from a trip this weekend and they're big now. So, now I walk in the door after being away for several days and they go, hey, what's up? <laughs> when they were little... It's okay, it's not a bad thing. They just grow up. But when they were little, right, they didn't stand there when I'd come home after being gone for three or four days and go, oh, father's home. Jolly good. (laughs) No, daddy! And they run and jump up in your arms, right? That's this word, Abba. They want to tell me what they did. They want to tell me what they learned. They want to tell me what was fun in their week. They want to tell me what was funny. Or if there was something hard, they'd want me to know about it. If they got hurt, they want to let me know all about that. Let me help them with it. And see, none of that intimacy and dependency and Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, none of that indicates any kind of disrespect, right? Because they're not recognizing my position as their father. It's because they do recognize that. And they know I love them as a father, and so they love me as my sons. Their hearts are full of reverence and respect and love and affection and dependence, and the two are not mutually exclusive. That's this word, Abba. They want closeness, and we do with God. They want affection, and we do with God. They want help when they're hurting, and we do with God. Because we're confident that as our Father, He loves us, He cares for us, He cares about the little things, because Paul will go on in Romans 8 to say, if He didn't spare His own Son, how's He going to fail to give you every good thing? He cares so much for you. 
And this is the Spirit that God gives within us. It doesn't minimize His glory. It doesn't overly sentimentalize Him. It causes us to look upon Him as our great and transcendent God with awe and wonder that He would love us and go, I love you so much. I want to be with you. I want to cling to you. I want to cry out to you. I want to be like you. This is what Paul is describing in Romans 8. This is the spirit of adoption as we drink deeply of the richness both of God's transcendent holiness and majestic mercy towards us as His adopted children. And so what what God does is He replaces our old disposition towards God. When we used to be God's enemies, and so we had no reverence for God, but, but fear and feelings of slavery and resentment about that and animosity, he replaces all of that with with a new disposition. The old one Paul calls a disposition of slavery. It is the disposition that a slave has towards a cruel master. It, It means this cowering, quivering, fearful, terrified, and resentful sort of disposition. Obeying, but only out of terror and dread of condemnation and destruction. That, he replaces that kind of disposition with this new disposition of love and honor and reverence and affection that a devoted son has towards his unconditionally loving father. Let that motivate you to be like him and to grow and to... And to destroy and mortify the deeds of your flesh, Paul is saying. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into that kind of fear. You received this spirit of adoption as as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Christians, our obedience towards God, the fruit that is born in our lives, the killing of sin, the growth in holiness, obedience is, is not motivated, is not precipitated out of the feelings that a slave has towards a master. Obeying and conforming out of obligation and and rote duty. Because unless we do, God's going to flog us. And may, in fact, at any moment fly off into a tyrannical rage if we don't do everything right now. That's, That's not the spirit that God's given us as adopted children. That's not the attitude that bears fruit for God, is what Paul is saying here. That's not the disposition that we have towards God anymore because... That's not the disposition He has towards us. We don't submit out of a fear of condemnation. Now, obedience is is willing. Now, obedience becomes more and more natural. Now, obedience is flowing more and more because our hearts don't fear condemnation. They love God as children love their fathers. And so, my, my kids in certain ways want to be like me. Sometimes they like to wear the kinds of clothes that I wear. They, they like to do the kinds of things that I do. They like to do activities that we can do together. They talk the way we talk. They laugh at the things we laugh at. They enjoy the things that we enjoy. There's, there's no greater honor than that, right? And that's our relationship to God that Paul is describing here. The Holy Spirit does not lead the children of God by stirring up slavish fear. That's the motivation of all the false religions, including Roman Catholicism. You can get a lot of external compliance out of fear. 
Happens in false religions all the time, but that's the self-interested, self-preserving, me-centered flesh only. It's not the God-glorifying Spirit. The Holy Spirit confirms our adoption by helping us kill sin and yield fruit for God by awakening in us childlike, not childish, but childlike affection, son-like affection and reverence and dependence on our Heavenly Father because we're so supremely and growingly confident of His unconditional love for us. As the Spirit bears witness within our spirit that we are the children of God. That makes us cry, Abba, to Him. Now, one, there's another step here to take. And I know we're short on time, so let me see if I can move quickly here. There's one more step to take as we talk about adoption and all the rich blessings that that entails. And, and that is understanding the richness of our status as the adopted children of God, where Paul says in Romans 8, verse 17, that if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs, and there can be no greater blessing than not only standing in the courtroom of the great holy judge of the universe covered in all our sin, and having the, the sentence of eternal judgment and condemnation laid upon another so that we don't have to bear it and then not just being forgiven legally and and justified by the great judge but but then being brought home by him and not made to live in the basement and eat gruel but said everything that is mine is yours you are my son You have rights as an heir to everything that I have and everything that I am, God says to us. Now see, if if you want to have this spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father, then you just stimulate it. You just meditate on these great truths all day. Of the gospel, of what you were saved from, of adoption, of inheritance. You're forgiven, God says. You're free. Call me Father, not Judge. And as you come into my household, understand all this is yours because I love you. To formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own natural child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance from God. What does God have? What doesn't God have? Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations. He's saying, this is the Father saying to Jesus, the only begotten Son, I will give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. The Father says to the only begotten Son in Psalm 72, May He have dominion from sea to sea. And from the river to the very ends of the earth. And in Daniel chapter 7, right, that great, Vision of Jesus being brought before the Ancient of Days and given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And it's a dominion that's everlasting, which cannot pass away, and a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That's all the stuff that Jesus has inherited. And we are co-heirs with Him. (laughs) In Him, as adopted children of God, We are also heirs of God, heirs with Christ of all things. Because if we endure, we will also reign with Him. 
Now, if you can be confident of that, if you can get that through your head, if you can meditate on that day and night, if you can, if you can confront every instinct that you have to define yourself according to some other circumstance or some other reality, if you can confront it with this reality all day, every day, you will be killing sin. You will be growing in grace. And you will be despising all of the things of this world that are vapor anyways, and you will be living for that which is eternal more and more and more because you are an heir of God. We exult in the hope of the glory of God, not in the hope that somehow everything's going to turn out well for us in this world. John sees this in Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. This is what's waiting for you. This is your inheritance. A new heaven, a new earth. Because the first heaven and first earth, this one, passed all the stars in the sky, passed away. The sea was no more, but now I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is your inheritance. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God forever and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall no longer be any more. Neither shall there ever be mourning or crying or pain anymore. I've had, you say, I've had 50, 60 years of pain. Unimaginable pain. Oh, I know. And God knows and He cares. And His only begotten Son knows and endured it in this world also in order to give you this hope that, that there will be unending billions and trillions of generations of no pain, no crying, because all these former things have passed away. This is your inheritance. And He who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Starting with you. Starting with the new life. One day to be a new body where sin no longer dwells and death no longer dominates. Living in this new heavens and this new earth where God is our eternal Father and present with us and saying, I give you all of it. Enjoy all of it. Go explore all of it. Go indulge in all of it in sinless bliss and glory for eternity. Can you just think about that all day, every day and go... Yeah, that helps encourage me. That helps me feel like the things of this world are really momentary light afflictions compared to that. That helps me understand the love of God and want to love Him and obey Him and serve Him because the nearness of God is my good and He is my portion forever. Amen? All right, we're really out of time, so let that be the last amen. Father God, we thank You that You are our Father and our God. And we thank You for all that You have done to make us Your children and all that You are doing by putting Your Holy Spirit in us to confirm to us that You are our children by helping us to be able to battle and mortify the deeds of sin that remain in us through this spirit of adoption by which we are being trained more and more and more to have confidence that we are Your children and to look to You for the grace that we always need and the kindness that You always have. And so, Father, give us this grace, give us this confidence, give us this love, and help us live as children who glorify their Father. 
And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All of that is the spirit with which I want us to sing, We Are God's People. Amen. So stand together, turn to page 12, and let's sing with confidence hearts that we are the chosen of of the Lord, born of His Spirit, and established in His Word. Let's sing to our God and give Him praise.